acknowledged and do not necessarily reflect the views of CBS, ABC, NBC, Fox, CNN, or MSNBC, or Al Jazeera, or anyone else that you can imagine. Who is your daddy, and what does he do? Hi, this is Scott Clark. You are English type, sir. Well, what are you then? I'm French. Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? And this is the Heidelcast, the broadcast devoted to recovering reform, theology, piety, and practice. What are we talking about? We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. I'm a pastor and a church historian. This is episode 81 for the week of Sunday, January 4th, 2015. The Heidelcast is a service of Heidelblog.net. Contact the Heidelcast at Heidelblog.net or on Twitter at R. Scott Clark. Send us a message and we may use it in a future broadcast. Catch all the episodes at Heidelblog.net or subscribe in iTunes or another podcast app. Click on the Heidelcast icon on the HB homepage to get all the information. Guess what? I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. This is part five of our series on the moral law, God's holy law. You can start this series in episode 77. On the first commandment, we saw that God will not share his glory with another, certainly not with a creature. In the second commandment, we saw that we must worship the true God truly, that is, only in the way that he has commanded. Remember, we're not right with God by obeying his law, but believers seek to obey it because we have been declared righteous on the basis of Christ's obedience, Christ's righteousness, freely imputed credited to us and received through faith alone in Christ alone. And we're up to the third commandment in this episode as we're working through the Ten Commandments, God's holy law. And the law says, you shall not take the name of Yahweh or the Lord your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. When you see the word Lord in small capital letters, small caps in your English Bible, whatever translation you're using, that stands for the Hebrew letters that are probably, although not certainly, pronounced Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. Sometimes it has been also translated in earlier Bible translations, for example, the American Standard Version from the early 20th century, as Jehovah but that's the name of the Lord. That, that uh, translation is probably not entirely proper since different vowels that didn't belong were substituted, and that's how Yahweh ended up becoming Jehovah. The commandment says, you shall not take the name of Yahweh. That's what the text says, and it gets translated into English as the Lord, your God, and that's the word uh, Elohim. It's the generic word for God in Scripture. It's the word that's used in Genesis 1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so how do we understand this commandment? In Heidelberg Catechism, question 99, we say that we must not by cursing or by false swearing, nor yet by unnecessary oaths, profane or abuse the name of God, not even by our silence and connivance, which means going along with, be partakers of these horrible sins in others and in some that we use the holy name of God in no other way than with fear and reverence so that he may be rightly confessed and worshipped by us and be glorified in all our words and works. So the first thing that we have to say about the name of the Lord, Yahweh Elohim, is that the Bible says it is like the Lord himself. The Lord is holy, and his name is holy. Now, it's not altogether easy to understand exactly what holy means, because it's a complex word that entails a bunch of different ideas. It is unique. It's one of a kind. There are not lots of others just like it. The name of the Lord, the name of God, whether the word used is El Shaddai or Yahweh or El or Elohim, those are all different names for 
God and the Lord, and remember the covenant name is Yahweh, right? So there are different names that God uses for himself in Holy Scripture, and all of those names, right, the, like the Lord, they're all holy. They're unique. They're not like other gods. They're not like creatures. For one thing, God is clean and his name is clean. It's unstained. It's unspotted. There's no sin associated, no corruption associated with God. There's no sin, no corruption associated with his name. It is pure. It is simple. Now, God does use different names for himself in Holy Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament broadly, that is the history of redemption before the Incarnation. Nevertheless, God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4, the most fundamental confession about God in Holy Scripture is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, Yahweh, is one. And so uh, God is pure. He's unmixed. Right? You and I are complex mathematically. We are body and soul. God just is. He is one thing, and he is morally pure. There's no corruption, no stain in or on God. God is undefiled. His name is undefiled. And of course, our lives, our existence, are, uh, our lives are stained. Our lives are defiled. Our existence is defiled because we are defiled, because we are born in sin after the fall, and therefore we are uh, corrupt. We live in a common world, but God does not. He is set apart. And so holiness has to do with this idea of being set apart, being unique. It's distinct from that which is common or that which is ordinary. Believers, therefore, are obligated to treat the name of God accordingly. In Scripture, God's name is who and what he is to us. In Scripture, there is the closest relationship between God's name and God. And I think we have trouble with this idea generally. We really don't, I, I think, understand how close that relationship is for a variety of reasons. One, because we're talking about God, and that's always difficult to do accurately in human language. God is, in his essence, transcendent. He is beyond our understanding, and yet he does make himself known, and he does reveal his truth. And so we should say all that we can say and must say, all that's revealed and all that is implied in that revelation. Nevertheless, even after we've done that, there is much that we do not understand about God, and that's in the nature of things. There's another problem, and that is, in our time and in our culture, in late modern North America, and I think this is particularly true for younger people, but it's true generally, we tend to assume that names are arbitrary, that they don't have any particular relationship with the way things are. My name, one of my names anyway, my middle name is Scott. Now, I'm not named Scott, or I wasn't named Scott at my baptism because I'm Scottish. I probably have some—I do have some Scots-Irish heritage, but that's not why I was named Scott. Like a lot of other parents in that era, my parents liked that name, and so they chose that for my middle name. But again, there's no necessary relationship between the names I have and what I am by nature. But that's not how things work in Scripture, where there is a close relationship between the name and the thing named. For example, in Scripture, Esau is red and hairy. That's what the name means because that's what he was, red and hairy. And so that's why they called him that. So, in Scripture, there's a close relationship between the name and the thing named, or the person named. And there's a very close relationship between the names of God, whether it's the generic word God, Elohim, or El, or some variation thereof, or Yahweh, or Lord, as we translate that, uh, El Shaddai, God Almighty, right? or Jesus, God the Son incarnate, or the Holy Spirit, or Father, all those names are intimately related 
to what God is and what and who he is to us, because he has come to us and he has entered into a covenant with us or covenants with us. He entered into a covenant with Adam when he said, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And impliedly, there was blessing, which was represented in the garden by the tree of life. Keep this covenant and you will enter into eternal blessing and fellowship with me. Break this covenant and you will enter into death and condemnation. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And as soon as we did break that covenant, we were expelled from the garden and we were spiritually dead. And Paul says that in Adam, all of us died. God has also entered into a covenant of grace with us. He came to fallen Adam and to us in Adam, and he made a promise. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will strike the heel of that seed. And he administered that promise through the history of redemption, through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses and David. And finally, it was fulfilled in the incarnation, obedience, suffering, death, resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And though that is who he is to us, the God who comes and enters into a relationship with us. He speaks his law to us, and he speaks his gospel to us. So we're not talking about God in sort of abstract terms, but we're talking about God in uh, terms of his covenant relation to us. And so his names tell us about his covenants with us, particularly his covenant of grace, but his covenant of works as well, his law in which he says, do this and live, right? There are always two ways of relating to God, law and gospel after the fall. And you either have kept the law yourself, good luck with that because you were born in Adam, dead in sins and trespasses, or... Christ is your law keeper, and you are righteous before him on the basis of all that Jesus did that is credited to you and received through faith alone, that is resting, receiving, trusting in Jesus Christ, the righteous law keeper. But we always have this relationship to God, either law or gospel. And God always comes to us in Revelation. He condescends, he stoops over. Calvin uses the metaphor of a, of a nursemaid. And he says that God lisps to us the way a nursemaid talks to an infant. And that's just exactly right. We are creatures. And nevertheless, God has wonderfully made himself known. And he reveals to us that he is holy. He is transcendent. He is above us. He is clean. He is unique. There is no one beside him. He's unspotted. He's morally pure, morally righteous. He is set apart. So let's focus on this idea, set apart, because I think that will help us get to the heart of the third commandment and the name of God. In Genesis 15, 7, God said to Abraham, and Scripture says, and he said to him, I am Yahweh, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So Yahweh is his covenant name that he makes Uh, that he reveals to Abraham in Genesis 15. We see it again in Exodus 3, 13, where it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Right, Which is not a formal question. They're asking, What kind of a God is this? Who is he to us? That's what that means when they say, What is his name? They're asking, What kind of a God? And Moses says, What shall I say to them? And this is what God said to Moses, I am who I am. Sometimes it's translated, I am that I am, or even I will be what I will be. God is the one who simply is. He isn't becoming. He isn't any less than he was. He isn't any more than he will be. God just is. He is the self-existent one. He's not made by our hands. He's not made by our imagination. He is the one who was and who spoke into everything, who spoke everything else, that is, into existence. And so he says to Moses, and he said, 
Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so God's name is a covenant name, the God who entered into covenant with Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the patriarchs, the God who is. His name embodies all of those truths, all of those realities, all of those properties, those qualities, or at least it signifies all of that to us. And of course, the Apostle Paul likes to use the expression, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And a dear old friend of mine said to me many years ago, under the time of typology, types and shadows, looking forward to Jesus, we thought of God as the God and Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of the patriarchs, and now we think of him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and I think there's an important point there. But it's all true. He is the God of the patriarchs, and he is the God and Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we say that the Son, Jesus, God the Son who became incarnate, Jesus, is God, we're saying that uh, God is one in three persons, and that all that makes the Father God also makes the Son God and makes the Holy Spirit God. Not three gods, but one God. Not one person, but three persons. That's the Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity. God is transcendent. That's why we say holy, unique, special, set apart, unlike us, transcendent to us. And that's why we, we use that language, because it's, it's what Scripture gives us to think and to say. And again, we see this way of thinking of God as holy and unique and transcendent and beyond us and pure and set apart. Again, I think that idea of set apart is really important here. In Exodus 6-2, God spoke to Moses and said, I am Yahweh. Right? That's my name. I'm, I'm not like you. I am separate. I am special. I am your covenant God. You shall revere me. That's what we are to in- infer when God speaks that way to us. Sometimes even Scripture refers to God as the name, Hashem, modern Hebrew. Usage reflects this idea that God's name, and it's an ancient, actually, Jewish tradition, that God's name is holy, and therefore they don't even use the names that I have spoken for you in this broadcast. They simply use the Hebrew words Hashem, the name, instead of saying Elohim or God, at least in some Orthodox circles, and certainly not Yahweh. But I've used those names because they're in God's Word. Elohim, Yahweh, El Shaddai, they're all in God's Word, and they were all said, and as I've said many times, and you may have heard me say this before, the name of Jesus is just as holy as any other name of God in Scripture, and certainly we are to say it. We are to pray in the name of Jesus, and the writers of Scripture certainly said the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul used the the name of Jesus. There's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. And, and so certainly we must say that, we do say that, we are to say it, and if we can say it, and it is every bit as holy as Yahweh, El Shaddai, Elohim, and all the other names of God in Scripture, if we can say that, then we can say the others. Nevertheless, we should say them all with reverence, because that's one of the major points of the third commandment. God is holy. He's set apart. He's distinct. He's not common. He's not profane. And we're not to treat his name or himself, really, because when we treat his name as profane, we're treating God as if he were common, as if he were no different from us, as if he were impure the way that we are, as if he were stained and corrupted the way that we are stained and corrupted and common. But God isn't stained, corrupted, or common, and we're to treat him accordingly and his name accordingly. Leviticus is the book of holiness in the Bible. If you want to understand a little more clearly what holiness means and what it entails and how we're supposed to think about holy things, 
then Leviticus is your book. Not that we're under those ceremonial laws, the the ceremonial parts of the 613 commandments, 613 mitzvot, not at all. All of those ceremonial laws, the hand-washing laws, the cultic laws, the religious laws, the civil laws, certainly all of those have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom all of those things pointed. And so we're not under them in the way, certainly, that those under Moses were. Nevertheless, we should still read, preach, study, pray about, consider the book of Leviticus, because it does help us understand what the Bible means by holiness. God instituted, the Lord instituted these ceremonies, as I I say, to point us to Christ and to illustrate His holiness, His uniqueness. For example, Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely. Now, it doesn't say you you shall not swear by my name, but rather you shall not swear by my name falsely, and thereby profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. So when you you see in your English Bibles, when it says, I am the Lord, and the word Lord is in small caps, right? Not the regular capital letters, but the sort of smaller version, then that's a signal to you that the covenant name of God is being used. And it's translated with those four letters, L-O-R-D, in small caps. But it's really the, the Hebrew letters that are probably pronounced Yahweh, God's covenant name. Leviticus 19 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely. Not that we shall not swear. Now, there are those who say we should never take any oaths, but that's clearly contrary to Scripture. We're not taught in Scripture never to take oaths, but we're taught to take oaths when we certainly invoke the name of God or the Lord, to do so reverently, and then to keep the promises that we make, certainly, when we take an oath, invoking or using the name of the Lord. Now, this business of holiness, and particularly reverencing or revering or recognizing as holy and setting apart God and His name, is not an easy thing, particularly in a culture that seems to regard it as a duty, almost, to rubbish and dirty up any sacred thing as soon as it's discovered. Second, in order for us to be able to begin to obey this commandment, again, not in order to be accepted, but because we have been accepted, we need to learn to distinguish. And this is not going to be easy, but it needs to be done. We need to work on it. We need to learn to distinguish between that which is common, which we used to call secular before it became a bad word. The word secular comes from the Latin word "seculum," which just means the created world in which we live. It doesn't, at least historically, mean anything bad. Um, but it's come to be used in popular culture to, to mean things that are, are bad or opposed to God. Pundits speak about secular humanism or secularists, and I understand what they mean. It's unfortunate that we're sort of losing that word because it's, it's a good word in and of itself, and it just means that which is common, that which is shared by believers and unbelievers. And we do share things with unbelievers. I know there are writers and there are approaches to thinking about the Christian life and um, the Christian doctrine of knowledge, sometimes called epistemology, who would have us think that we really don't share anything with unbelievers. And yet, at the same time, most of those would recognize that there is such a thing as what has come to be known as common grace. We used to call it general providence. I would rather talk about general providence providence. And in the general providence of God, we share much with unbelievers. We cross the same streets, we live in the same world, we use the same currency, we go to the same doctors, we breathe the same air. And God says that he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So rain, according to the testimony of Scripture in Matthew 5, is common to believers And unbelievers, there's not Christian rain and pagan rain. There's just rain. Now, there is a difference between the way Christians and non-Christians interpret the significance of rain. So, uh, secular is simply a way of describing that which is common to believers 
and unbelievers. And that's actually the old sense of profane as well, although it's come to mean something impure, something uh, um, corrupt, and even something evil. But the, the distinction I want to make here is between that which is sacred, who is God, and the Lord, or God the Lord, and his name, right? God is sacred, his name is sacred, holy, and uh, that which is not God, that which is not sacred, is secular or common or shared by creatures, and not necessarily bad, not necessarily evil, not necessarily corrupt, but simply not holy. Rain is not holy. God is holy. Now, as I say, there's a difference between the way believers and unbelievers interpret the significance of this world, whether it's rain or streets or anything else. We interpret them one way, and an unbeliever interprets them another way. But we still share the experience of rain. We are all image bearers made in the image of God. So I think we ought to be careful about overstating the differences or the separation or the antithesis, to use a phrase that Abraham Kuyper liked to use, between believers and unbelievers. If we overstress the antithesis between believers and unbelievers, and, and it certainly exists, and I, for one, am, am not at all interested in obliterating the antithesis, uh, it, it's a fundamental distinction between us. Nevertheless, if we overstate it, we run the risk of turning into or falling into an ancient, non-Christian heresy. It was called Gnosticism. So there is a kind of, there is a tendency to think that we have a sort of secret knowledge that no one else has. That's the essence of Gnosticism. We don't want to fall into the notion that the antithesis between believers and unbelievers is such that we really have nothing in common with them whatsoever, because that does sort of border on it, on a kind of Gnosticism. It, it tends to reduce Christianity to a secret of sorts. And while it's true, yes, that the, in the Gospel of Mark and elsewhere, there are places where our Lord Jesus said, now don't tell anybody. Uh, that is certainly true. Nevertheless, the pattern in the New Testament is to announce the truth publicly and to say that, look, we saw the risen Christ. And when we, when we announced to the world that we saw the risen Christ, that 500 people saw the risen Christ, we were not appealing to an esoteric, secret kind of experience. We were appealing to a public experience which other people could understand. Uh, when we say saw, when we were referring to the faculty of sight, we weren't making some sort of Gnostic appeal to a, a secret experience, but to something that was available publicly. Now, again, the significance of the act of the resurrection is going to be interpreted, and it was in the ancient world between believers and unbelievers, going to be interpreted differently. Nevertheless, there is also a shared aspect to that. We see things, unbelievers see things. We can appeal to things that they know. We can appeal to a knowledge that they have, right? The Apostle Paul does that in Romans 1 and 2, right? The knowledge of God is not secret. It is public. Now, the knowledge of God available through nature is not saving. It's law. It's not gospel. It's judgment. It's not grace, but it is a true knowledge, and it is common. It is shared by believers and unbelievers. Okay, so all of that is trying to get at this notion of the secular and the sacred, that which is holy and that which is common. So it's one thing to make fun of a, a football team, a football player or a referee or, some, or something, or some other pop culture figure, but God's name then is sacred. It belongs to another order. We can take the name of a pop star on our lips and, and not worry too much. But we must be very careful when we take the name of God, of the Lord, of Yahweh, of Jesus, right? Any of the names of God. When we take the names of God on our lips, that's a different thing. And that's why we don't use God's name as a curse word. Not even in what uh, one of my friends calls a minced oath, where we 
a, you know, signal that what we would do if we weren't afraid is to use God's name. We use something that reminds people of God's name without actually using it. That's a minced oath. And the reason we don't do that is because God's name is pure. And cursing is common, and it's more than common. It's, it's dirty. I mean, common isn't necessarily dirty, but cursing is, is dirty. And so we, certainly God's name and cursing are antithetical to one another. They don't belong together. The government requires us now to swear. So when we talk about swearing, it has two different senses. In the popular usage, it usually refers to, to cursing, but here we're talking about swearing oaths, and that's proper. We're not Anabaptists. We don't understand Scripture to teach that we may never take oaths. We may, and Scripture teaches us to take proper oaths and even to invoke the name of God. But when we do it, we do it carefully. That's what our Lord Jesus meant when he said, when you uh, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil, Matthew 5, 37. And James 5, 12 says the same thing. Well, Scripture is replete with good, holy oaths. And in these two cases, what we're being taught is not to ratify what we're saying. Right? When we want people to believe us, right? we're not being asked to take an oath, but when we want people to believe us in, in sort of daily discourse, the temptation is to say, I swear by such and such. And both Matthew, or both our Lord in Matthew 5 and James in James 5 are telling us, don't do that. You don't have to strengthen what you're saying or try to make it more credible by swearing in that way, loosely, vainly, carelessly, by the name of of our Lord. You don't even swear by the hair on your head because you're not really ultimately in charge of that. And if you don't believe me, well, email me. (laughs) Just ask a bald guy. There's not much you can do about it. All of that's in the providence of God. So our catechism says that we should not uh, stand by. There's the next thing that the catechism says. We We shouldn't stand by when other people treat the name of God as profane, as common, or even as Dirty. Now, this is perhaps one of the more difficult applications of the moral law in the Catechism, because, as you and I are talking, we live in a world in which the Lord's name is abused almost constantly, whether it's in public or in the media or at work or among family or or what have you. It's just everywhere. And so there are a few things to consider. First, when this commandment was given to Israel, it was given to her as Yahweh's national people under the old covenant law. And under that law, blaspheming the name of God was a capital offense. You can see that in Leviticus 24, among other places. Now, there are no more national peoples of God. And again, I understand that there are people who think that there still are national peoples of God, but most of us understand that's Not so, that the national relationship between Israel and the Lord ended at the cross of Christ. And now God's people are found among every tribe, tongue, and nation. And God has not entered into a specific national covenant with any other nation since Sinai. And that covenant ended, and that's Paul's teaching in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4, among other places. That covenant was temporary, but the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace, is not temporary. That's, again, his teaching in in Galatians. Second, when the Catechism was written, the situation was a little bit like that when the moral law was given. Christians in Christendom saw themselves, and the European governments saw themselves, as, in a way, God's national people. It's kind of interesting. If you ask them, particularly if you ask the Reformed theologians, you know, is France God's covenant people? they would say, well, no. But when they went to writing about how the king of France or the Holy Roman Emperor or some other civil ruler should behave and how he should regard the church and and how he should regard religion and, and the true church and true religion in his state or her state, in the case of 16th century England, well, people talked about those rulers as if they were de facto a sort of modern-day 16th or 17th century David. Virtually everyone then was regarded, whether in Scotland or France or the Netherlands or 
England, or the German states, virtually everyone was perceived as or regarded as a baptized Christian. And thus, when your neighbor blasphemed, you were to correct him because you were correcting a fellow baptized believer. And so in that way, when the Catechism was written, it's a little bit like, or a lot like, the context in which Leviticus was given, in which blasphemy was a capital crime. And yet you can see an indication of this in the Catechism in the last part of the answer when it says, quoting now, so that he may be rightly confessed and worshipped by us and be glorified in all our words and works. The assumption is that everybody around us is a Christian, but there are some difficulties with this. First, uh, we have no evidence that in the first century, the Christians went around correcting, and they certainly did not go around stoning, the pagans by whom they were surrounded and who abused uh, divine names and sometimes the divine name or names. Christians were mocked by pagan critics, uh, not only in the first century, but uh, rather pointedly in the second century. And the pagans invoked the gods constantly. And in fact, Paul teased them about it in his speech uh, in Athens to, at the Areopagus to what has sometimes been called the Athenian Philosophical Society. It wasn't actually that, but it, it was essentially that, functioned that way. So arguably, when pagans used the word God loosely, they were not abusing the covenant name Yahweh, and, and therefore the New Testament Christians didn't remonstrate with them, or at least we have no evidence that they remonstrated with them about it. And so that, I think that gives us a, a way to look at how we, who live in a largely pagan, unbelieving culture, or increasingly so, where Christian influence is decreasing and non-Christian influence seems to be increasing. How do we relate to a predominantly non-Christian world? Do we remonstrate with them? Do we complain against them when pagans who aren't baptized or don't name the name of Jesus, don't make any profession of faith? I'm not talking about who actually believes, but who makes profession of faith, who really know nothing of Christ his church, his gospel, the Christian faith, the Christian creeds and confessions, are we to get after them when they abuse the name of the Lord? Well, perhaps, but I do think it would be wise to uh, be aware of the differences between the setting in Leviticus and the setting when the Catechism was written and the setting in which we find ourselves today. After all, the most recent studies that I've seen, and they're a few years old, suggest that uh, fewer than 10% of Americans go to church every week. And those who go twice on the Lord's Day is about half that. And, and that figure, that percentage, 10%, is actually several years old now. The old numbers that were quoted for years and years that 40% of Americans attend church on uh, on a regular basis, is those numbers turned out to be quite inflated because when, as they say now in politics, you dive down into the numbers, it turns out that people counted things as church attendance that probably aren't properly counted as church attendance. Somebody goes to a wedding and you say, well, do you attend church? Well, I just went to a wedding, so I guess so. Well, when you start factoring in those kinds of things, you get a very inflated number. So 90% of Americans don't attend church on a regular basis, which means we live, at least outwardly, in a largely non-Christian, largely, apparently, pagan nation. Now, it's true that if you poll people, they will say they believe in God. But if you had polled the ancient Greco-Roman world, they also would have said that they believed in God or the gods. It depended on uh, who influenced them philosophically. So whatever we think about what we ought to say to pagans about abusing or misusing the name of God, Christ, the Lord, etc., you know, however you come down on that, certainly it seems to me that we who profess the Christian faith, who believe, ought to be distinct from the pagans around us. So if whatever they do, let it not be so among us who actually believe, who actually know something about the faith. So, 
What can we do? Well, there are a few small things and some big things. One small thing we can do is that, that I've noticed recently is to stop saying OMG and, and uh, stop saying the words for which it stands. I understand that everybody does it. I understand that it is frequently done and commonly done in the sense in which I was using it, widely done. But that doesn't mean that we ought to do it. We know that God spoke all things into being, and the God who did that, and the God who sustains us, and the God who provides everything that we have, and the God who redeemed us in Jesus Christ is holy. And therefore, that sort of careless speech ought not to be a part of our vocabulary. I know it's tempting to say, well, it's no big deal, everyone does it, but, well, that's not really how we make our ethical decisions, is it? Because everybody else is apparently doing a lot of things that we know that we ought not do. And again, the underlying principle here is to learn to be able to distinguish that which is sacred, that which is set apart, and that which is common. And the spirit of our age is to make everything common or profane, as I said, to dirty up everything, so that everything is fodder for comedy and and nothing is revered. And I think as Americans, we struggle with this particularly because we have in our culture, our national culture, a strong democratizing streak that wants to flatten out distinctions. Well, recognizing that God is holy and his name is holy and it's set apart and it's different goes against our grain. It goes against our culture. And so the temptation is to try to make it a little bit dirty, a little bit ordinary, uh, to tarnish it a little bit. And we do it, and we're not even aware of it, which gets us back to things like OMG, the stuff that you, you see on texts, things you see in direct messages, you see in social media, and, uh, and you see and hear when people are using the phone and the like. That's just a small way of sort of dirtying up that which is sacred, that which is holy, that which is supposed to be set apart. And so we laugh and applaud. Uh, we laugh at and applaud comedians who take politicians down a peg and take down other public figures. And, you know, that's what we do as as Americans, as Westerners, and, and so forth. But as Christians, as believers, we're obligated to set aside the holy name of God, the covenant name of the Lord who saved us and who sent his only begotten Son, because that is his name. The name Jesus, for example, means Yahweh saves. And Yahweh, as I've said again and again in this broadcast, is God's holy covenant name. And so every time we say Jesus, we're saying the covenant name of God, the holy name of God, the very name that God said to Moses, tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. I am Yahweh. When we say Jesus, which is really Jesus in Greek and perhaps in Aramaic, Yeshua, something like that, we're really saying Yahweh saves. This is the God who spoke at Sinai who gave his holy law. And if we remember that God is one God in three persons and that the Son is the Word, he is the revealer of the Father, then we understand, and particularly if we look at at Hebrews 12, that he's pictured there in in, in Hebrews 12 as being at the top of the mountain. That's, I think, a way of suggesting to us that it was the Son who was standing at the top, if you will, revealing, standing at the top of Sinai, thundering and revealing his holy law. And so when God said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, we need to understand that the same Lord who said that is the same Lord who became incarnate. That is Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our Savior, Jesus our Mediator. He is that Holy Lord. And so when we hear people take his name casually and treat it as if it were less than holy, treat it as if it were common or as if it were dirty, to use it in a swear word, or if we, God forbid, should do that, we've done something very serious. It is, as we say, a gross sin. So, We ought to be very careful, even about the name of Jesus, even though it's widely used in Scripture, and even though we are to use that name boldly and freely to announce him to other people, to give witness to him, to pray. There are good, proper, bold, and even frequent uses of the name of Jesus, but those are all holy uses of the name of Jesus, good uses 
not common uses, not profane uses, not dirty uses or abuses of the name of Jesus, not a careless use of the name of Jesus. And so our catechism continues in question 100, is the profaning, that is the making dirty, of God's name by swearing and cursing, so you you know what we're talking about here, so grievous a sin that his wrath is kindled against those who do not help as much as they can to hinder and forbid the same? And the answer is, yes, truly, for no sin is greater and more provoking to God than the profaning of his name. Wherefore, he even commanded it to be punished with death. So we've already touched on this, and I won't go over this in detail. But it's important to remember that it was a capital crime under the Old Covenant to abuse the holy name of God. And the Catechism reminds us of this fact in order to drive home how much we, who know God in Christ, who have been given new life by the Holy Spirit, should value the name of God. And so I suppose that, as you and I are talking, you're like me and you're remembering moments when you've abused God's name and when you've stood by as some other professing Christian did so. Now, correcting another person over the careless use of Jesus' name is difficult. It's you know, not like accusing them of murder, at least we don't think it is, although God thinks it is. It's not like accusing them of adultery, but it is a very serious sin. And as I said, it was a capital crime under Israel. So that should give us an indication of what God thinks. Now, it's not a capital crime now. All those punishments, all those civil laws, all those ceremonial laws, they're all fulfilled in Christ. We're under the new covenant. We're not under Moses in that sense. And still, we have this obligation to other people, other Christians who profess the name of Jesus. And it's scary because we don't know how they're going to react. But when we think about how the other person might react, we also ought to remember what God thinks, and maybe that will help us keep our priorities straight. So this gets us back to the sacred common or sacred secular distinction. If there really are things that are not common, that are really set apart, that are really pure, that are really clean, that are really good, then those things are worth defending. And when we do it, however, and this is important, we should do it graciously, we should do it patiently. We should not do it as those who are without sin. When a brother or sister does it, maybe the best thing to say is, hey, I suppose that you really didn't mean to do what you just did. You, maybe you're not even aware of what you just said, but you know, I want you to be aware of this. And uh, you know, and maybe we can hold each other accountable with respect to these kinds of things. Because you know, I, I struggle with this too, or I've, I'm not setting myself up as one who's never done or committed this sin. That, that's a, a way that you can go at this. Now, what do you do when you're standing in the line, uh, standing in line at the bank or waiting to get into, get into a ball game or something, and some stranger abuses God's name? Well, I imagine that opinions on this are going to differ a little bit, and I've given some reasons why we should perhaps distinguish between what believers or Christian professors do and what we should expect of unbelievers and those who make no profession of faith. So you're standing in line and somebody abuses the name of God or the Lord or something, what do you do? Well, one thing you could do is ask, do you profess faith in Christ? And then see how they respond. And if they say, well, no, well, then You've got a choice in front of you. If you do, well, then you can say, well, listen, you know, you're aware that God says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, right, if they make a Christian profession. If they don't make a Christian profession, uh, then you've got a, maybe another approach to take. Maybe one way to approach them is to say something like, well, I understand that you don't believe the Christian faith, but I do, and I would be grateful if you would respect the Christian conviction that God's name is to be treated with reverence. In our understanding, it's a great sin to abuse his name. That might be an interesting way to open a conversation. You know, I'm not going to sit in judgment over you. I've struggled with this for years, and I understand that people may very well differ on, on how to handle this. But it's certainly worth thinking about and worth praying about. As I say, whatever the pagans do and however they use God's name, they'll have to give account to God. Christians believers who've been saved from the wrath of God by the Holy Son of God, who've been baptized into his holy triune name, however, ought to revere that name 
out of gratitude and even holy fear. And one place where Christians swear properly by God's name, besides in civil contexts, is when we take church membership vows. Those are sacred oaths. When we come to the Lord's table, really, we're renewing that membership vow and implicitly swearing an oath. But when we join the visible church, Christ's church, his embassy of the kingdom of heaven, we swore an oath to God and in God's name. We stood before God, we stood before the congregation, and we swore an oath to be faithful in response to God's grace. So that when someone who has taken such an oath abandons the visible church, that's not only a violation of the fifth commandment, and we'll come back to that later, but it's a violation of this commandment that we've been considering in this episode, a violation of the third commandment. It is breaking a sacred oath made over the holy name of God. That's one reason why church membership was so difficult to obtain in the ancient church. And perhaps in view of that sacred oath, you might do well to make it a little more difficult in our day. But I'll leave you to think about that on your own. That's it for episode 81 of The Heidelcast. That's the way it is. Tune in next week for part six of the series on God's holy law. Subscribe at heidelblog.net in iTunes or your podcast app. Write to Heidelcast at heidelblog.net or on Twitter at rscottclark. Send us a message and we may use it in a future broadcast. Remember, the Heidelcast may be cheap, but it isn't free. When the coin in the coffer clinks, the cost of bandwidth shrinks. Copyright 2015. All rights reserved. Good night, Jet. And from Washington, thank you and good night for all of us at NBC News. Nothing is over until we decide it is. Adjusting the Wayback Machine, Sherman and I were quickly on our way. Good health to all from Rexall. From Hollywood, it's the Jimmy Durante Show. Yes, 10,000 Rexall drug stores who carry the complete line of top quality Rexall drug products bring you the Jimmy Durante Show with Peggy Lee, Roy Bargy and his orchestra, the crew chiefs quartet, yours truly Howard Petrie and Victor Moore. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Rexall's prescription for a pleasant evening, the one and only Jimmy Durante, in person. Now even when things go wrong, you feel better, you even look better. I'm out of here.